Welcome to What's Korean Cinema, episode 33 on a bloodthirsty killer. The black and white mindbender of 1965? We'll see. But regardless if Lee Young-min's A Bloodthirsty Killer shared the creative stage with other horror movies and filmmakers that year in Korea, it is the movie we're going to discuss and review this episode. We're gonna provide some context of uh, the horror scene of the 60s at the very least, even if not the year itself, 65. But, but regardless, my name is Kenny B. With me as always is Hangul Celluloids Paul Quinn, who I hope has uh, cleaned himself up after soiling himself out of fear watching this movie. Yeah, yeah, clean, clean. I smell nice as well. If there was smell of vision, you'd you'd be able to. You'd think, wow, smells good, looks clean. And in the in and in the second episode of our uh, double header, I I could reference the fact that have you taken your magic mushrooms and ready for the podcast? <laughs> I actually, when I was when I was rewatching it, I actually thought you got to mention it. You know, you have conversation for people who in years past have done magic mushrooms or whatever and you just want to phone them up and go you know what you need to watch this movie it's got magic mushrooms in it terrible uh, two, two and a half hour uh, ride of sorts uh, in but that's in the 34th episode uh, here we uh, here we're looking at a 90 minute ride that's uh, also known as and referred to as a devilish homicide or a devilish murder but seen as the movie uh, being available on the korean film archive youtube site under the title "A Bloodthirsty Killer," that's what we're um, going to um, going to use. I actually don't. I know you like those other titles, but I think those titles sort of give it away. <laughs> they kind of they kind of do, and, and I get where you're coming from. I just I think one of the other titles sort of just fits better. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. You know, I, and yeah, okay, it does give it away maybe a bit too much, but. Regardless, we, we, we can we can uh, settle on an option in our respective heads and uh, we'll all be happy. Uh, but uh, let's uh, do some brief contact information before we get into uh, this uh, discussion of uh, this 1965 black and white shot in scope uh, uh, horror movie. Do you remember, by the way, this is off the cuff, if uh, Korean movies of this time opened up with and it said it's presented in something scope right do, do you remember korean movies making up something something scope because you know you had toho scope you had sure scope uh, and they, they named their own scope uh, you know so do, do you remember that from any korean uh, movies uh, of the time very much if if you look at sort of shin films you know shin san oaks films they were often in shinoscope or whatever They've all done it. We did it as well, for heaven's sake. So, yeah, um, not a huge thing. A lot of them at that time were four by three. But the ones that did, you could, you know, off the top of your head, you could have made up a better name. Thank God that the name wasn't copyrighted, Scope. So everybody could go crazy with uh, creativity for their opening a logo of the, mo- of the so, movie and all of that. So, uh, Cool, my friend. Uh, this is a Regardless What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire network. We're located on podcastonfire.com where this show about a new and old Korean cinema is located. Uh, we have plenty of other shows on Hong Kong, Japanese uh, cinema. We do Slisa Cinema. We uh, have talked about Ninja Cinema. I say have because... That series, the Golden Ninja podcast, uh, reached its conclusion by episode 16. Uh, more of a logical conclusion rather than um, the, the hosts falling out. Uh, it was just that okay. we've uh, we've covered all the bases and those movies, those cut and paste ninja movies. There, you 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 can't vary up your review style, unfortunately. After a while, uh, they're they're boxed in. 
Yeah, so uh, we, we said it on 16, but all the archives are there for every show ongoing or not. If you have any questions or feedback on uh, a particular topic and uh, movie of this episode, or any other question, podcast on fire at googlemail.com is our email. Follow the handy buttons to our social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and on Facebook you can join the Facebook discussion group as well as liking our page. And you can click the iTunes button to subscribe to What's Korean Cinema to get the show delivered to you promptly. And finally, you can stream us on Stitcher Radio, either on the website or the application available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And over on SoGoodReviews.com, I write about mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies, uh, genre movies, uh, naughty movies, a variety of genres. And also, uh, every now and again, Korea trickles into the picture. As I recently told you, I reviewed a South Korean-Taiwanese co-production from 1976 called The Great Escape from Women's Prison. Indeed, yeah. And it's the third Women in Prison movie from 1976 that was a... Korea Taiwanese co-production, two of which Shin Sang Ok directed, uh, Girls in the Tiger Cage, and uh, its sequel, which is like Return uh, to the Tiger Cage or something like that, but uh, uh, shot at the same time. So at least three movies that year focused on this particular genre, and uh, I hope there's more because I, I I like the fact that this is hip, <laughs> and uh, let's turn to Taiwan. They seem friendly, friendly enough. Totally agree. Yeah. You know, when when you mention it, you just think, oh, that's, oh, yeah. Part of movie history, man. Even apply, like, even applies to you. That's why I wanted to plant, it, uh, plant that little nugget in, in your head that uh, this happened, uh, you know, over in uh, Taiwan and, uh, or presumably maybe shot in Korea. Who knows? But uh, they're, they're definitely a mixed cast because I recognize some Taiwanese uh, faces as well yeah. in those movies. Not a bad film, that The Great Escape from Women's Prison. It did its thing effectively enough it understood what it was supposed to do in terms of genre so it was all good uh, those are my sites i'm available on twitter on at uh, so good reviews is my handle anyway uh, paul writes for a little, uh, little little great website it's not little it's a great website big website by now and growing hangolcelluloid.com so uh, give the new listeners a little kind of introduction to your site and where is it as Kenny said, I'm Paul from Um You can find me at HangleCelluloid.com. I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com HangleCelluloid. On Twitter at, at HangleCelluloid. And uh, if anybody wants to email about anything, it's info at HangleCelluloid.com. So there you go. As long as you remember and spell HangleCelluloid right, you, you'll find me. And, uh, you know, have a look at the site. It's Korean-tastic. Oh, there you go. Uh, put that on, on a business card if you have it. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> uh, cool, my friend. We have a, uh, a rundown uh, coming up here because we have a few sections coming up, including a discussion of the director. And I thought I'd let you know uh, what uh, those sections are. There are also time stamps in the show post in case you want to fast forward to a particular point like the review. So first of all, we talk of director Lee Young-min's biography, or, or what there is of it, really. And uh, because I couldn't find a lot in English anyway. And uh, we'll discuss some of the horror movies he made and that gets name dropped today when talking of him. And we conclude our episode with the review of A Bloodthirsty Killer. And uh, that movie is from 1965, as mentioned, and plot from the Internet Movie Database, but seriously shortened because I kind of wanted to keep it spoiler free. Because the, the movie does some things in reverse, like um, the big reveals start 
for and we, we, we get the big reveals for the last third of the movie so that's why I want to keep it somewhat vague uh, but uh, the, so here we go uh, quote because it plays uh, because it does matters in reverse uh, playing out past events in the last half hour the IMD plot uh, spoils the film so I merely kept the following a murdered woman's uh, spirit takes the form of a cat to seek revenge yeah a little bit of a spoiler but how and why and who are all these people that uh, we keep on, on encountering in the first hour of the movie but uh, we'll get to that Lee Jong Min is the director and some writers hint that Korea's history with horror is looked at more as a modern phenomenon and not enough look back at the emergence of the genre in the past such as in the 60s aka the golden era of film production of Korean cinema I mean that's still fair to say right uh, to, to name that era the golden era or what do you think Paul yeah v- very much so I mean people are right before the new Korean cinema wave of, of the late 90s horror existed right from the 20s through the golden era of the 60s and 70s right through but it was pretty much a hard sell Directors did it, you know, Young Min did it, Kim Ki Young, if you look at his Killer Butterfly, it's it's supernatural, it's, you know, despicable women as he did all the time. It's overall horror, but there are other elements as well, and there were very few directors who were doing straight out horror for horror's sake. Yeah, the golden era also... If it's golden era horror, it was definitely a golden era of uh, other genres such as melodrama too. So uh, I, I gather like the ratio wasn't in horror's favor in that uh, in that era. Very much not in its favor at all. I mean, there were a few. Uh, you, you've heard of Kim Ki Duck, the old Kim Ki Duck, rather than the famous one that everybody knows. I mean, he did a load of sort of younger films, monster horrors in the 60s and early 70s and and they sort of sat alone because they were on their own as well yeah they're horror but they're more monster rather than supernatural so yeah there were there were horror movies there were a couple of versions of what later became a tale of two sisters etc etc but it really was all about the modernization of korea all about despicable women all about melodrama you know, those few horror directors that they were, were hard to come by and their output, well, we, we know a lot of the output's been lost. But you and I have, co- of course, covered uh, Shin Sang-ok's spooky thousand years old fox from 1969. But Shin worked in multiple genres, as we know, so you don't think horror specialist when mentioning his name. Certainly not, but in terms of, of the the golden age, if you were to talk about the famous horror movies that one will come up all the time it's probably the most famous horror one even though he wasn't particularly a horror director Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i mean we still thought it was effective in 2016 or whenever it was we reviewed it uh and um, my cheeky little note on uh, shin sang Ok, you know if it's not a if he's not a horror specialist he's rather an evading kim jong-il specialist if uh, it's looking outside of the movies Uh, and i've seen by the way the lovers and the despot documentary by now that you said contains some more uh, definite statements of uh, the kidnapping or the willingness of the kidnapping or lack of willingness in the kidnapping and uh, yeah some questions are answered Uh, they certainly are. They certainly are. 
But uh, one uh, director that is singled out uh, in in the history books as uh, dealing with uh, horror in uh, sort of an expert and devoted fashion is Lee Jong-min. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we talked of what it was, uh, how, how much Korea... Korean horror emerged back then but uh, in a general sense though, would it be fair to say that South Korea's take on horror goes ignored until the 90s or even post uh, 2000s so, you know, for wrong reasons or, or for reasons having to do with the lack of availability of golden era horror so uh, what's your personal take on that? Pretty much, I mean you've hit the nail on the head, there, there were horror movies, there were a lot of movies with horror elements as I say Kim Ki Young, Kim Ki Duck you know they're they're everywhere in their films, and depending on your take, you could almost call some of their films actual horrors. You know, it really was all about Korea, Korea, Korea. It was all about the modernization of family and the supernatural thing. They tried to take it off. They tried to do the odd story about gummy hose, you know, nine-tailed foxes, as Shin San Ok had, but the appetite just wasn't there. People were so hit with melodrama that they wanted more of the same. Um, so it really was pretty much ig- not ignored, but almost half passed by until um, a film called Whispering Corridors came out in, I think, 2000, and, 2000 2001. Um, and it was the first of the the plethora of high school horrors, followed by Memento Mori and Whispering Stairs. And at and at that point, younger people had started going to cinemas and those films appealed to them directly. And they were much more influenced by Hollywood and, you know, your slasher movies, your normal American horrors. And they bought into it hugely. And straight away after the early 2000s, horror just became a huge thing in South Korea for a good few years until everybody got bored again and they started repeating the same old, same old again. So so, so did this um, horror trend, did, did they have their little own horror trend and also the uh, the ripples that uh, Hideo Nakata's The Ring uh, caused in Japan? Because that hit Korea, uh, surely. But uh, did they have their little own, like... Uh, genre explosion having nothing to do with uh, the long-haired girl that came out of the TV? I mean, the whole there certainly was that. And, you know, if if you look at The Ring, it would have been, I guess, 2000, maybe 2003, Korea did The Ring Virus. So mm-hmm. they didn't get away from it. And I have to say, The Ring Virus is my favourite of The Ring movies. Of course. <laughs> at all. Yeah, of course, because it's Korean. But it is actually... It is actually just it's it's much more ominous. I, I'm, anyway, um, in terms of them doing things on their own, yes, they they very much did. They constantly looked when they did look at horror, looked at folklore, looked at old stories like you know the tale of Rose and Lotus that became a tale of two sisters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was easy for them to hit on horror that could appeal to familiarity within audiences by going back to mythology that everybody knew and i mean everybody every country's done it but korea did it as much as anybody else mm-hmm. well, well these uh particular high school horrors if we if we just sort of reduce it to a very basic thing did it in gen in genuinely produce classics or were they more easily digestible or even forgettable uh youth horror movies if you will both <laughs> yeah i can imagine 
you did get a lot of generic, oh, here we go, school bullying, you know, young girl dies, so she seeks revenge and whatever. But you did get some really standout the school horror series. Those three, you know, Whispering Corridors, Memento Mori and Whispering Stairs are known as possibly the best horrors of the new Korean cinema wave. Films like Death Bell that took it to an extra extreme. It was the same sort of deal, but it added to it and added to it. They've all stood the test of time as absolutely classic. And there are a lot that just, you've got them on DVD, but you remember seeing them. I mean, there were a series of that sort of whispering corridors deal that was taken further. And they were almost added on to number four and number five. The the voice with Kim Okbin, et cetera, et cetera. And they were passable, but I wouldn't even really consider them in the same series, even though they're meant to be, because they're just less than the previous classics should have been. Yeah, so uh, back to Lee Young-min, he's uh, talked of in the same divisions as directors like Mario Bava out of Italy. By the way, uh, let us stop you there. Have you ever wanted to explore, have you explored any of the sort of key Mario Bava movies, whether, you know, Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, Blood and Black Lace, those kind of movies? Very much so. I, I am an old rocker. Ooh. <laughs> any, I, 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 for, my, for my sins. So any movie, <laughs> any movie called Black Sabbath is going to have been watched, etc., etc. I have, I love all that stuff. It's a, it's obviously visually driven, very elegant and creepy as hell. Um, particularly Black Sabbath. The Call of One is Black Sabbath, right? Uh, sometimes yeah. I confuse that and the Barbara Steele one. But regardless, the, the episode in Black Sabbath uh, with Call of is the creepiest one. There's a scene where the the little kid is uh, banging on the door. Let me in, let me in. You know, you know, it's a ghostly apparition. That just creeped me out even today. You know, uh, that, that was effective, effective stuff. Anyway, uh, Leo Min is also, also talked of in the same division in terms of pioneering movies for um, for the genre, uh, visually and content-wise. Uh, but Lee Young Min has stayed more on the outskirts of that fame and fandom. And perhaps, indeed, the problem has been the lack of availability pre- the Korean film archive stepping in and lifting films into the public eye and availability again in general. I mean, not all his films are available, but uh, in, in a way, all of that is sad, is sad, but also encouraging that discovery as a viewer can be made even in uh, 2017, thanks to the work of uh, Kofa. Because the movies are sort of are not purely meant for that era, necessarily. If you look at Blood First, The Killer, that's not a movie that demands that you know what's going on uh, what went on in society in 1965 <laughs> so it's it's obviously yeah, exactly. it, it looks yeah. old just because the filmmaking techniques are a bit crude but otherwise they're not meant purely for that era so they have valid nature to them uh, to them now so um, I, I really really appreciate that At, as for biographical notes on Lee they're, they are sparse but he was born in 1916 in Seoul and would study film abroad at uh, Neon University College of Art which presumably is Japan um, so yeah. correct, correct me if I'm wrong but we, we we don't. I mean, it's a, it's almost a different topic, but I'm interested in this stuff. We we don't hear a lot of stories when we talk of directors of of uh, where they studied because uh, it often seemed they the classical directors studied locally. Yeah. Would that be so logical and fair that studying in Japan would would be a hard, sensitive issue considering politics and war history of uh, of those uh, decades um, in particular? I think for a long time it was 
an issue, maybe not as a big an issue as we'd expect, but there were certainly there was certainly an element of that. And and most of the classical directors did study at home. People like E. Young Min, who did go and study in Japan, went to study in Japan because regardless of whether Korea wanted to admit it or not, Japan knew more about filmmaking than Korea did. It had been going for far longer. The Korean films that were made during the Japanese occupation were Japanese films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine there'd be an element of, ooh, which eased over time, but I wouldn't say it was, you know, a no-go deal. Because I imagine if a Korean wanted to start in Japan, that would be welcome. But then when you come home, or if someone knows that you've started in Japan, maybe that would be sensitive if you wanted to evolve your career based on your education. I, you know, I, I think a lot of them would have thought about it and then decided against it and decided to study locally. I mean, if you look, again, I keep, I constantly go back to the new Korean cinema wave, but the fact that Every time that's mentioned, they say, you know, new filmmakers who studied abroad, went to the US, went to Europe. And it's not only that they went to the US and Europe, it's that they were studying abroad. This was kind of a new thing as well. And that came because of the influence of Hollywood and, you know, European films in Korea, that that was decided the way to go because they knew more as well. But back in the 60s, it was much less of that sort of deal it was much more korea knew what japan was doing japan knew what korea was doing and if you wanted to study abroad you had to decide whether you're going to go to japan or stay at home and as for film work uh, lee young min crafted a documentary as his first feature in 1946 the topography of uh, jiju island he did a short film as well three years later called the shepherd the shepherd and the golden watch and it wasn't until the mid 50s that his first feature narrative movie was made uh, the star of million which was followed by movies in 1956 such as holiday in seoul and he even acted as a cinematographer on a number of projects for other directors and was even awarded for his work in that capacity at the blue dragon film awards for his cinematography on 1963's conqueror we said we don't know much because some info is lost. I'm just going to ask, uh, ask and see if you came up with anything. Would would the first examples of his directing in 54 and 56 be possibly melodrama genre related? or And regardless, are, are we talking quality movies for the genre? And are there any other movies as director of photography of note uh, where his eye clearly elevated the production other than uh, the movie that I mentioned, Conqueror? I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, you mention his name and as we've constantly done in, for the last five, ten minutes, you know, horror, 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 horror. When he started out, you've just mentioned Star of a Million. That was another documentary. That was a documentary about a military training camp. In oh, Jeju. so it wasn't a narrative movie. OK, then, then, then I apologize. No, 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 totally. You know, I mean, these... They, it's so hard to find the information of these things because they don't exist anymore. Um, but it was again, a documentary and it was, it was well thought of. It was well received. He went on. You've already mentioned he did holiday and soul. I can swear that movie has come, come up in discussions before. I recognize that title. I've mentioned it before. And when we were deciding on the film to link with train to Busan, I put it up as a suggestion. Um, we, eventually went with i think i'm trying to think what we went with 
I've I've forgotten the title, but it's the it's the it's the other other one with a little bit of a train connection. Yes, totally. <laughs> um, but Holiday and Soul is essentially a melodrama with thriller elements. It's about a couple who aren't doing very well in the relationship. They decide to go on a, a day trip to Seoul. He's a policeman. He gets a call about a murderer. He goes off to investigate, catches the criminal while he's doing that. She meets a pregnant woman who ends up giving birth at a train station. And it turns out the pregnant woman is the husband of the criminal that her husband's caught. They all end up getting together. All their misunderstandings are sorted out and everybody lives happily ever after. That's very blasé of me to say that because it is a really good film and it is a classic. But in terms of, aside from his documentaries, if you look at A Wild Chrysanthemum, if you look at Homecoming, they're all this deal of two people don't get on, they have misunderstandings, they go through a load of stuff, and at the very end, their misunderstandings are sorted out and they live happily, and they always live happily. And that's sort of his deal until he hits the flower of evil. Um, and I think he was just a bit tired of people living happily. Uh, do uh, do you know of any other movies that uh, he uh, was the cinematographer on that uh, could be said to be uh, you know visually interesting at the very least? In terms of in terms of his him being cinematography, I think it's best to look at this his own stuff that he was cinematographer on as well. If you he did a film called Black Ghost um, quite late in his career, I think mid seventies probably. Um, and if you look at it visually, it's quite something. If you look at Holiday and Soul, it's it's a beautiful film. It's gorgeous. The cinematography is great. And I think he did it along with someone else. So I think he stepped his stuff up more than the other stuff. You know, you, you mentioned the, the one thing he got an award for. That's really the only thing outside that's ever really mentioned. And in 1961, as uh, Paul mentioned, Lee Young-min stepped into the horror genre, making a flower of evil, not flower in hell from Shin Sang-ok, but flower of evil, dubbed the first modern horror movie made in South Korea during that period. And uh, other researchers indicate that it's not easy to, easy to determine whether or not flower of evil had an impact. I mean, you, you, you can answer as well if this movie exist anymore after i'm done and and when they say first modern horror movie that that means that other directors had dabbled in horror in prior decades but this wasn't a new emergence for a new decade new techniques new styles etc or or what does first modern horror movie mean to you if you look at previous decades you you do have the you know i i said again the kim ki young kim ki duck sort of putting little elements of horror in before they went a little bit further and made them something that could be described as horror. In the same breath as this being described, Flower of Evil being described as the first modern horror movie, I've actually read stuff that describes The Housemaid by Kim Ki Young. Yeah, fair enough. It has stylish elements that scream uh, horror. As the first modern horror movie. So it depends who you ask. Um It's just a case of a change in, yes, they're learning new techniques, they're trying to bring new techniques in, but it's more in terms of narrative content. If you look at, you know, if you look at a bloodthirsty killer just as a flower of evil, it's it's horror through and through rather than something else, a melodrama or with dark parts or 
a thriller with melodramatic parts. It's very much a, it's a horror movie. You, it starts horrifically and until the very, very, very end, nearly the very end, it stays horrific. So that's sort of what they're dealing with. Does a flower of evil exist, as far as you know? No, it's not. It's gone. Shame. Because uh, cool titles like that would make me sit down. Uh, cool, like uh, it's almost exploitation-style titles to get your attention, but it certainly does. So No, totally. I mean, some of his titles make me scream to see the films, and I'm so upset that something like A Bridegroom, uh, excuse me, uh, A Bridegroom from the Grave, you know, I mean, what a title. <laughs> wow, I want to see it now. And it's a title just... that a rocker would watch, right? Because it's a metal title. Well, totally. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the other things that grab me. I think he did a, a film called, I don't see it on my, oh, yes, A Necklace Beauty. I mean, wow. Yeah, wow. Someone's going to lose their head. That's on points. You know, so, I mean, in terms of his films on the Coffee YouTube channel, the only ones that are are there are Holiday and Soul and A Bloodthirsty Killer, which is a real shame, but it's just because so few of his movies exist. I know you can find Black Ghost from 76 on YouTube if you search, or you used to be able to, but it's not a legitimate link, if you like. So, Well, Koffa's work is um, never-ending, so maybe they'll stumble on Lee Young-min again, whether they are consciously looking for particular movies maybe they'll stumble on prints and go through them and hopefully totally i mean i I would assume there there must be something somewhere it's just it hasn't turned up yet i mean we we hear stories of kofa finding prints uh, in china for instance so it's not the 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 search isn't korea centric only so uh or was it uh aimless bullet i think was the print that uh they found in um, no maybe that was in China because it, 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 Aimless Bullet was um, an international festival print I believe yeah. uh, so but, but regardless yeah. I, I remember a, a story of them finding something in China but anyway Lee Young Min would mix and match genre work uh, despite having dabbled in horror he made historical dramas fantasy oriented films uh, throughout this decade but uh, was back in horror in 1963 with uh, the expressive and excellent uh, title as Paul mentioned A Bridegroom from a Grave yeah which is reportedly as we also mentioned also a lost film but A Bloodthirsty Killer that followed in 1965 was discovered and remains available to this day as the Korean Film Archive uh, have put it up on their YouTube channel uh, they um, located elements um, and they even uh, uh, original ones in 35mm possibly the print looks okay it, it is an HD on their channel but uh, it's a print that is uh, held together by uh, you know spitting glue like you know even housemaid is uh, ha- has a problematic print like it, it for c- much, currently yeah. it doesn't get any better for certain stretches of the film so but this one has uh, has even quality when it uh, came back uh, came back uh, out of obscurity it's played at the 7th Puchon International Fantastic Film Festival and received good critical notices as well as a later DVD release in Korea uh, presumably the Korean Film Archive did their own DVD but uh, regardless uh, current uh, reviews because they are current they are modern speaks uh, highly of the black and white cinemascope photography with low lit low key lit rooms and corridors uh, claustrophobic settings despite a wide frame uh, it has a nightmarish uh, gothic air about it and even the special effects are of note for time and uh, Jasper Sharp even called it a delirious B-movie shocker 
That sort of sums it up. <laughs> if I came up, if I could come up with that quote myself, uh, I would have used it. But that's uh, Jasper's. And uh, considering it's been available for a while now, has um, anyone been able to find out whether a bloodthirsty killer had any audience or critical impact upon release or research? Is still a subject that remains difficult when it comes to Lee's films, including the available one. The little you can find about the director, I mean, if any, any of you listening want to go and try and have a look to find out much more about him, you'll have a hard time. You really will. But what you do find is current or current-ish, I guess, reviews and talk of critical acclaim always reference previous articles that reference films that no longer exist. So just thinking about it, you know, they must have had an impact. They must have had critical acclaim because they were talked about while they still existed and they haven't existed for an awfully long time. They wouldn't have been mentioned if he'd been completely passed by. Um, he wouldn't have got his reputation if he, if they'd been completely passed by. So I'm almost extrapolating the assumption, but it couldn't have generated the amount of talk about films that don't exist in detail unless those films had made an impact. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that totally makes sense. Uh, he continued to craft project le- leaning projects leaning towards horror, such as the mentioned A Necklace Beauty and Revenge of the Snake Woman. But the 70s reportedly, um, the, the indication was the productions slowed down with only four movies made during that decade, and there were several years between some. And his uh, last uh, credit uh, to date is apparently that movie you mentioned, Black Ghost, from 1976. And, and is that uh, him slowing down? Could one assume? a little bit, uh, theorize a little bit that the 70s and its restrictions and censorship at the time might have affected uh, how Lee Young-min worked? I, I think very much so. Um, anything of his I've seen has had nothing really sexual in it. Yes, there, there's there's talk of in a bloodthirsty killer, a guy you know says, oh, at one point a character's about to die, so you might as well let me do what I want to do. But that's as far as his goes i don't think he had any interest in sex and the whole thing about 70s late 70s and even early 80s korean cinema was that the government instituted a policy called the three s's if you think back to that time in the lead up to Gwangju that i keep talking about um the riots people were really unhappy and and the government figured you know what let's give them three s's let's give them sport sex and screams and that that was their honest take that they allowed suddenly sports stuff to be pushed forward far more than it had been they allowed sex to be talked about which hadn't previously been the case and it was all to keep people happy when they essentially weren't happy underneath it all but if they had a bit of sport and sex well they'd make do wouldn't they and that that was their take and if you as a director weren't interested in doing anything sexual, I guess. The 70s really wasn't for you. If you look at a lot of directors that had done, oh, this is bad for Korea, that's bad for Korea earlier, when they got to the 70s, they started into making sex-ish films, you know, between the knees, et cetera, et cetera, because... That's what people wanted. That's what kept them happy. And if you weren't into it, you just didn't do it. And I would assume that's why he slowed down because it wasn't his deal. There is there is also the thing that through the late 60s, 
any horror films that there were were re-turfing the same things over and over again and people just got bored and it may well be that he realized nobody wanted to see any horror films that he could make anymore so um him finishing in 1976 was probably his final hurrah as a well this is my last horror film and it's probably going to be my last film as well it is so regardless if he retired or couldn't get projects off the ground the director did pass away on april 24th 1982 at the age of 66 and uh, and i mean we we come back to this if his influence uh, can be felt based on a little research uh, you you can pick up um, but but in all honesty i mean can, can, in all your years of studying korean cinema have you ever felt that lee young min is quoted as an influence you know verbally by directors or in cinema today or or because of the this theme of lack of availability that is so hard to determine whether modern horror has you whether you can draw a straight line from modern horror to lee young min for instance is that just impossible to determine 100 percent no i think that's that's actually quite easy to determine you know anytime i keep mentioning kim ki young but anytime you talk about kim ki young and his horror elements someone writing about this stuff will mention lee young min um it's it's almost symbiotic you mention one you mention the other and Kim Ki Young was so big that Lee Young Min, in the same bracket, was equally as big. He has to have been. You know, he influenced a lot of things, as far as I'm concerned. And I think his importance to Korean cinema and even Korean horror cinema of the new Korean cinema wave can't be overlooked. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that at the very least there are traces of his legacy out there and that's you you got to be thankful for what we do have obviously and uh, you know judging by a bloodthirsty killer it's it's not a bad film to have available i suppose uh, to because uh, it's a great introductory uh, thing to uh, to his style i suppose and uh, as for uh, our short uh, views and our review it's coming up now and uh, i in terms of my short bite-sized opinion of a bloodthirsty killer, I'd like to say it's it's probably not the first emergence of this structure of dropping us in the middle of terror, and by hour one, the director fills in the gaps. But the movie is a lot of creepy fun, because uh, Lee keeps up the hauntings and the revenge scenario quite well, because he, it's wall-to-wall, really. It's non-stop terror, and the character for the characters. Uh, but then the reveal as to why makes it a satisfying uh, genre piece. Not revolutionary as such, but uh, damn well executed, I think. So, a, lo- uh, a lot of creepy fun. Uh, so, what do you think in uh, short of uh, a bloodthirsty killer? My my favourite horror films that are ones that make me grin with glee as I go through, and a bloodthirsty killer had me rubbing my hands with glee from the very first you know, dissonant music over the, the titles to the the thunder and rain that just made me think, oh God, this could be Frankenstein. At the very start through to, you know, the the licking of characters. Um, it, it just, it, for me, for all for any faults it has, it's, as you say, really creepy fun. Um, it's not necessarily scary, but it's not necessarily not. Um, and can I just say, when we decided 
Um, I don't know if you've told everybody what you're going to be reviewing next. Not before the recording, no, because um, we we our old set of episodes uh, are are coming out soon at the time of recording, so we're focusing on that first. Well, we we always choose a new film, and I'll try and find something that links in some way to an old film. And I'm very proud that I'm not going to mention the name of the new film, but in both the films, of Bloodthirsty Killer and the other one. We've got rain and thunder at the very start. We've got a dog fight. We've got shamanism. Um, I hit big time. Three three counts. Thank you. <laughs> you got your own set of threes there that you just discussed. Uh, deeply, deeply, deeply proud of myself for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> well, well, you should pat yourself on the back. And uh... but there you go. So, um, if, and if you look at it in terms of that, you know, these are classic things and he does wheel out the classic horror tropes you know you've got dogs howling in the distance cats making those fighty noises but but you know what the odd thing is that as classical as it is it's really really odd and creepy because some really for long stretches you don't know what the next parade of weird stuff is going to be which is the biggest pro of the movie in terms of pros and cons. Uh, obviously, it being black and white and in scope is such a delightful image because I always liked the shape of the cinema scope. I always did. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, so obviously, he, he rolls out those elements, uh, you know, lightning strikes and uh, is there a crazy killer out there because you see people like, walking through trees and stuff uh, or because i i didn't know of the plot so it was all like what, what is gonna what's what is it gonna be or when's the big sting you know when's the big yeah, music yeah. sting and then you get the big we, we have no context of anything for an hour barely any context which is challenging but also works out very well so you got the main character picking up this um painting at a in a big empty hall it's not a big filled art exhibit that it picks up this creepy laughter in the big hall, and the painting melts, which is a really well done in camera effect. Uh, actually, well, it's surely physical, but it melts really well. It really does. I mean, rewatching it, I actually rewind that three or four times and got right up to the screen to just have a look at how and it is really well done because it melts like evenly it's not like one part uh one like the left frame melts more than the other or anything like that so it it really works out evenly but we there's a nightmarish sort of surreal mind-bending thing that's going on here the imagery that really creeped me out is this in the beginning here is a very shortcut to when the main character, the male character, is uh, he has the painting, he's in a car, and he sees for a brief second these hooded people in the woods between the trees. They're dressed in white and they're running around. And that made me go, yipes, I'm super scared because what is that? What the F is that? And it's a surreal start and that we aren't in tune with what's going on. The characters are a little bit more. And that challenge of, uh, you know, we are going back and forth between abandoned or mysterious places. People are acting weird. And it's intriguing enough, but but you sort of hope in your stomach that, God, I hope there's clarity at the end of this. I mean, I I can take a surreal time for the sake of it, but I hope there's clarity at the end of it um, too. Wasn't necessarily frightened that he was going to be self-indulgent. I, I sort of felt like it's probably going to end up okay. But 
this is surreal. I have no idea what's going on. And and, and that atmosphere, I think, is um, extremely well-crafted. Because it is that way, isn't it, Paul? It's literally surreal. We have no idea why he picked up that painting and those creepy people in the woods and it's melting and what this new area that is going to is you know it, it's it's completely it's completely out of this world you know and i mean just like the main character we're sort of being pushed and pulled we haven't got a clue what's going on you know he he turns up at an exhibition that's meant to have his stuff in it it's empty and he finds this picture and there's you know haunting evil female laughing going on he goes outside and he meets a, a random weird guy and next thing he's in a car being driven somewhere he doesn't want to go because the guy thinks he wants to find this red portrait painter it, it's a roller coaster ride from start from the very very start and it, it's so fast paced you can't you don't have time to think that you're not getting a grip on it really no not really i mean it's it's uh that's what he keeps up so well leon min this isn't isn't a 10 minute centerpiece to start the movie and then he's then he needs to have a nap because he's exhausted all his powers as a filmmaker no 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 he keeps it up for an hour and then he starts to tell the story after that were you ever sort of concerned that uh, you know 30 minutes in 45 minutes in that the lack of clarity would be a problem or you trusted your instinct that he's probably going to um, sew this uh, up uh, by the end in some shape or form the the few films of his that I've seen always had a clarity Overall, once you got to the end, you know, things were explained. So it never actually occurred to me to worry. I was I was happy to just let him take me along for the ride. And there is a, a, a flashback, a big, long flashback scene from about halfway through that sort of paints the picture. So what you did there? Paints the picture. Oh, oh that was completely <laughs> spontaneous. I'm really embarrassed. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, if you look at that, not only does as soon as that starts you know you're going to get clarity and it's done in an okay way but it's also one of the first times in korean cinema that i can remember a big flashback scene like that to explain stuff and if you look at korean cinema now you'll find it hard to find a korean film without a flashback section in it so you know he was ahead of his time as well um i trusted him i never it never occurred to me i just I, I allowed myself to be indulged, and I'm I'm really glad I did. Yeah, because it, the, the tools of the trade used here are um, they're used well in a sharp sense, and uh, and, and I I was so delighted that the, the freakish nature of people's behavior and dialogue just keeps on piling on top of each other. At one point, I think he's reached the artist by this point, and uh, the man I've got his name the uh, the the male lead. His name is Lee Ye Chung. Uh, and he, I think he's accused of not feeling s- as strong for the woman in the painting, Aija, uh, uh, as he should. And some guy freaks out over the fish smell on his hands. And then we get a woman in white entering entering the picture, you know, the seemingly the vengeful spirit here. And it's yeah. this intense, fast-paced mind-bender that... Uh, the the woman in white I think she stabs a man and then she takes off and then we're left with that you know a, yeah. a mur- murder and we have no idea it sounds like these people are trapped in this level of hell almost that uh, it, it's gonna be endless man it might repeat itself it might be a groundhog day but hell instead totally and you know you you, you 
look at what's going when all that's going on. Our main character, wh- where is he? He's hiding under the bed, clutching onto a picture of a woman that we don't really know who she is, but we figured that's the woman who's just murdered someone. I mean, it's just it is surreal. It's just intensely out of context, seemingly for a, a fair while, and I quite like that. Very, very much, and I, I, I dug that there's a choreography to the spooks in a way that there's a, a iconic scene I think out of the movie, the one I really the second biggest freak out I think in the movie for me. At one point, the woman in white is gliding towards her victim, you know, out of the shadows and gliding towards him in a spooky manner. Then she stops and then she ascends to the ground. You know, yeah. or, 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 or descends to the ground. Regardless, like she stops and then drops like 90 degrees. Th- that is creepy because it's tricks and tools of the trade that seem common, but in a lot of things feel new just because of the onslaught of, uh, yeah. you know, a good half hour, four or five hour of just n- not being able to catch our breath here. And uh, yes, at one point there are hints dropped that, that there's a history here people have a history with each other there's a she she's referenced that the as the woman from 10 years ago and um and and, and we get a sense that there, there is some vengeful things going on here that it slots into that genre but he's he doesn't lay it all out before he does the 45 minute or half an hour flashback that yeah. co- concludes the film so so, so for all intents and purposes, this is just a, uh, an awful ride for the characters where this spirit is always there to harm them or those around you. And, and I also track back to that imagery that I told of, to, uh, told you of that it's just nightmare fuel for me. That uh, the the go the, the people in white in the woods, and obviously having horror like this in black and white, and especially when that particular piece of footage is essentially silent because it's just a brief piece of footage that someone uh, witnessed, right? All of that being in black and white and non-verbal and merely visual. It's all the more effective for me. Uh, it still is. <laughs> Despite having experienced modern movies, uh, those images are way more stronger for me, uh, way more impactful for me compared to tons of modern movies because they play a lot more with my imagination anyway. I also love the fact that that scene that you're mentioning, um, they're in a car and the weird sort of Igor, Igor type of character, I guess. It's evilish sort of man, seemingly. An Eeyore type of character would have been awesome. Like, (laughs) we have spooks. That film needs to be made. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, he says, oh, it's the 1st of May. It's when all the ghosts come out. And when... (sighs) Oh, that made me go... (laughs) You know, when when they then switch to those white characters in the woods, it's for, you know, a second. It's just there and it's gone. You just made the hair on my arm stand up, sir. Because... uh, (laughs) Lee Young-min did. Because it's just... It's the timing of it is so good because you can you've hardly focused on it and it's gone and you're thinking those those were people were they ghosts or were they in hoods or what 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 and it's just so fast paced creepy it's just great I like also you know the, the, these are random examples but at one point we actually get changes from day to night time uh, when at one point I think it's after the spirit has killed someone and she or she she takes one of the children 
uh, out of the window, which is a really well uh, conceived little wire effect, I think, because uh, yeah, nice. they, they all go out the window, you know, and upwards. When they reach the roof, I think it's changed to nighttime. And it almost makes sense. I don't think this is an error necessarily. It almost makes sense that she changes conditions. So it's not Ed Wood sloppiness uh, necessarily. It's almost like this world, she can change it at a flick, uh, you know, at a flick of a, like that. Um, uh, but then again, it might have been an error or two. You never know. There is one scene that I can't remember where it essentially comes, where the main character is running outside a house and, and down some road and you can see it was filmed during the day and they've tried to darken it to make it look like night so i assume there there have been things that they've just let go but you know if you can assume that she can change the thing if that occurs to you then it sort of worked for what it is and i you know I, i'm willing to give this film a lot of leeway because yeah, for sure because it's just it deserves it it's unreal enough where you lean towards that acceptance indeed. Um, and as I said, like we're looking for backstory, but there might not be any greater backstory than many did her wrong. And uh, the half an hour flashback will reveal all of that stuff. But in, in the meantime, we got uh, one of the standout uh, actresses. If you have um, the name of the actresses that plays the grandmother that would be cool because she, I think she steals the movie. She's creepy as she is, but then she's possessed at one point, and then she turns the creepy and spooky factor up uh, because she is uh, possessed to some degree. You mentioned the licking, which I don't think we should spoil why there's licking in this movie necessarily. But uh, I agree, there is there is licking that maybe we shouldn't mention. It's certainly it's um, it's imagery that will burn into your mind a little bit because, uh, whoa, it's not sexual. Uh, I'm not saying that. It's just uh, it has um, a lot to do with, with something I mentioned in the plot synopsis. But still, that's not context for you. But uh, the actress who plays the grandmother is uh, is on here. She doesn't look that old, but they they make her up a little bit to uh, and put her versus other actors in the frame to make her look like the oldest one but she isn't an old 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 lady of uh, korean cinema it doesn't look like it anyway yeah her name is ibn hua i don't know of her name but she's not an old woman she's been made up she's a she's a an averagely young ish actress um as i say i her name doesn't ring a bell the one actress that did ring a bell for me was the main girl the the ghost the you know supposedly evil lady um is a woman called do Kum bong and she is one of the biggest names from back in that time um she was in mother and a guest which we talked about quite recently i think she was in a a, a seminal pre-New Korean cinema film called Young Jazz Heydays. She was in a film called Eunuch, which was one of the first to get away with sexual content. And in every film that she's done, that you list, you just think, that's classic, that's classic, that's classic. For me, it, it was her, but I agree the seemingly older actress actually does a really good job as well. It's very theatrical, but not to the point of being comedic, right? Because the beat she has to work with is trying to hide her animal, essentially, at one point, right? To to prevent the evil animal to be seen. Uh, 
And those are rather playful and fun notions, but they, they lean towards spooky and creepy as well. Uh, and, and she's even underlit in certain scenes to emphasize that, which is a classic black and white style. Totally. But it's I still find that style to be fr- fresh enough in my eyes, despite, uh, eyes, despite being decades old, you know, in c- cinemascope and people are underlit and you know crap is going on now. I think her performance, as, as well as you know, the dialogue and stuff she was given really did her her role justice because she came across as really, really twisted, which is the way she's meant to be. You know, you just think you bitch half times through. So, yeah, works like a charm. And they even, to me, but I don't think they meant this as a satire of melodrama, but, but they use melodrama well here because at one point she... Uh, someone suspects something isn't right with her so and and she plays the melodrama card as a character oh kill me then i've lived such a lonely <laughs> life and like he's here fresh is about the place woe is me so it's all they're using melodrama humorously uh within the con within the scenario which i think is uh uh, very clever and uh, what's also clever i mean i know we're hopping on about her performance but some of the imagery that I remember really stems from her performance. There's some clever use of cutting to show that she is, you know, she is possessed and she's limber as well. Because at one point she's hanging from a beam in the roof, and there's, but but they don't show it in a wire shot. They just cut to her hanging from the roof or yeah, totally. something approximating a, uh, a ceiling. Uh, even if it's uh, not that high above the ground, uh, that's clever. And uh, at one point, they use reverse film to show her catching a knife in her teeth. And Paul, it's not simple to sell that because it m- no, it totally. can be goofy if not printed correctly and in a correct speed and all of that. And and even and even that cutting to her in the ceiling, that's not us missing frames necessarily. We buy the fact that she did go up there and. She yeah. is. Why is she limber? She's the grandmother. She can't be limber, but it shows that she is. And all of that, I think, is very cleverly executed. I think it's beautifully done. And you, you mentioned her catching a knife in her teeth that's, that's thrown at her. And it, it just works. I didn't, for a second, snigger. I didn't smile. I just, I thought, whoa, nice. Because it's just handled perfectly. And I, I guess it's a simple thing to create, but... It just works for what it is, along with everything else. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of the uh, sort of biggest effect? Again, we won't spoil too much, but the biggest effect uh, being uh, the transformation into a into a cat. Uh, because uh... I think they did very well for the time. You know, I've seen a lot more recent horror movies from from other countries that didn't do any better than that. You know, it worked okay. I, I think you're so caught up in it anyway. You're gonna let it let it go, even if it was less good than that. Yeah, I mean it's primitive, but the the it, it didn't get me out of the movie. I think it's admirably well put together, considering that it is a big special effects shot involving dissolves, possibly um, film on top of films or double printed film. So I, I think it's admirably uh, put together. I, I, absolutely. I mean, um, you must admire the fact that Lee Young Min and his special effects technicians really wanted to go to town with this rather than cut to someone i'm transforming now and then cut to cat yeah you know it's a great they they try a gradual thing you know i I think that with all 
their special effects, primitive though they are, they they did them with heart. I mean, there's there's a couple of tiny little sub scenes where the main male character is trying to grab hold of the ghost, and she's solid for one frame and the next they've obviously double exposed her and she sort of see through and she disappears and it's just it's so obvious what they've done but i thought it was quaint i thought it worked even though it's it's so basic as to be obvious what they've done basic actually doesn't get old when you're executing it in a clever manner uh, including the fact that she's now see-through and not solid i think um, just because something is basic doesn't mean that it's supposed to be discarded. Yeah. So uh, I think it's a good point. I actually don't want to say that much more, especially not about the last half hour, other than if we focus on the fact that, because now Lee Young-min is on the track of, okay, I've messed with you for for an hour. I've dropped some hints here and there. (laughs) Are you still with me? Because uh, this was a mind bender I gave you folks. So now I got to make things 100% clear. What happened, and uh, who was she, and uh, who were, who were all these bad people? So, in your view, when we get the last half hour and the full reveal of and the full scope of what happened, did he make that one coherent, and two was it an, enga- an, an engaging? Before we answer, we 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 gotta establish something. It's basic and sort of classic tropes, including the backstory, right? So it, for me, it wasn't dramatically revolutionary but it's it works it knows what's genre what genre it's playing in that's how the flashback is crafted so in your eyes was it coherent and uh, did he did he sew it up and uh, and all of that i thought it was coherent i thought he sewed it up when i watched it i i constantly wax on about this is what was happening in korea and korean cinema it's about the Gwangyu time. uprising despite being in 1965 <laughs> You know, we've already said at this time, you know, melodrama was already this huge thing. There was also the constant idea with all those those big classic directors of, you know, you do something wrong, you will pay. And it, it just fitted with the whole melodrama. It fits with the payment being sort of made revenge on those that deserve it and the the other thing that struck me, if you think back to The Housemaid, which we've discussed a fair while ago, at the very end, there's a, a very cheesy little ending. Um, and yeah. Lee oh, Young yeah. <laughs> Min, to my mind, does almost the same thing. It's a different ending, but it's the, the same thing. It's let's make this all right. Let's make the people who have sat and watched this horror movie leave happily knowing that the good people will be okay and the bad people will not be okay. It was the one cheesy moment and I thought, uh, but it sort of fits with with the time. So overall, it really worked for me. I might have changed that very last couple of minutes, but that's just a personal thing. Yeah, I think uh, I didn't mind it at all. It's uh, because he also, he doesn't throw everything at us for the last five, ten minutes. He he, he has decided that I'm going to play with the last third of the movie and uh, play it out at a like a good pace and uh, drop the exposition dumps and the story reveals in a slow enough manner where we can all appreciate it. And rather than someone saying, 
and having uh, having a conversation with with the woman and then she's tell it she tells everything in five minutes I, I appreciated that he set aside half an hour totally to take care of this and uh, and still drop some creepy stuff on us uh, throughout the last um, 30 minutes uh, so uh, that that's it I suppose uh, I highly recommend a creepy fun really uh, I thought it was funny and easily approachable too because it isn't uniquely Korean centric it's very uh uh, savvy in terms of uh, placing itself into you know the genre uh, a genre that applies to a lot of horror movies uh, made across the world right so um yeah i'm very glad this particular one got uh, uh, got discovered so give it a give it a go listeners uh i so so yes that's the end of my notes uh, what what else do you want to say if anything the only thing i'll say if, if anybody listening is a fan of what's deemed classic korean horror cinema please go and watch a bloodthirsty killer because it's different enough to make it worth your while and it relates to you know the surreal elements some of them you could almost feel that sort of thousand year old fox element a little bit but it's way more eclectic it's way more chaotic do give it a chance and you'll maybe see horror cinema that you've seen elsewhere but not in korea and as for availability, uh, Bloodthirsty Killer is available to watch for free in scope legally and with subtitles on the Kofa YouTube channel. And we'll link directly to the free stream in question. And again, it's all legal by uh, and uh, all part of the large library that the Korean Film Archive has on their YouTube channel. So uh, give it a go. And, and also, I know I hop on about this, but uh, back in the day, you could not watch these movies on external devices you had to watch it on your laptop or your uh, ipad so yes an external device uh, that way and and your phone but i merely have an iphone but by now they are allowing people to watch uh, these uh, streams on for instance apple tv and applications on the playstation 3 and so forth and that makes my job a whole lot more easier because i don't need to have split screen with notes in the movie anymore on my laptop right so uh and as a as an Android user, I can tell you that the same goes for Android. You know, you can watch it on your phone, you can watch it on your tablet. You, it, everything works, and it didn't always do so. Excellent. And and even old streams that I know didn't work, they do work now. Fl- Flower in Hell, for instance, I always knew that aha, that one didn't work. But I've rechecked that, and you can watch that on your Apple TV and so forth. Because I actually had a problem sometimes with having uh, with getting the subtitle to sync. Uh, to okay. sync up but now that they've uh, uh, they made the availability uh, as they have that issue is uh, no more so that's it for Bloodthirsty Killer uh, and uh, this has been What's Korean Cinema and go to podcastonfire.com for all your Podcast on Fire network needs including our social media presences and uh, our big What's Korean Cinema archive and the archives for all our shows so uh, here's up over there so that's uh, essentially the contact information from our site but you being a co-producer special co-host and a good lad you'll get a full plug thank you ever so much um, once again I'm hangelcelluloid.com you can find me on Facebook, Twitter pop over to the site I recently did a talk um, at the Korean Cultural Center well recently, a couple of months ago um, about a famous horror movie called The Red Shoes and in that talk and in writing it up I talked a bit about 
Korean cinema horror from the sort of 50s through to the 70s. Um, so if you head to the essays section, you can find a little bit in there if you want to know a little bit more about oldie Korean horror. But next time, perhaps perhaps we conclude our run of covering some of the big box office success stories of 2016. I say perhaps because there, there were more than three. But regardless, the next episode, we tackle Na Hong Jin's The Wailing from 2016. And is the director of The Chaser and the Yellow Sea going to go free for free? Well, find out next week. If you, if you sort of basically follow Korean cinema, you know The Wailing is mentioned, not just in, in Korea. So it's uh, it's making the rounds, and uh, we'll we'll get to it. But uh, for now, it's uh, it's uh, this episode concludes. Next one covers the whaling, and uh, we'll see you for the next episode. So I've been Kennedy, and uh, with me was Paul Quinn of Hangul Celluloid. See you later, guys. <laughs>